0: Good afternoon. This will get your attention. How about them Blackhawks, hey? Yeah, Stanley Cup. Thank you, everybody, for coming out today. I'm sure uh, you're all feeling uh, just dandy after last night's celebration. We really appreciate it. Uh, My name is Dan Albrecht. I'm with Leopardo Construction. Uh, Also, our co-chairs for programs, Howard Wender with uh, Strata Real Estate and Jeanette Outlaw with OFS Brands. Um, mark your calendars, uh, as I always say, it's the second Thursday of every month for our monthly luncheons. And also as a reminder, today's program is being podcast, so please, if you do have questions and we do encourage that, uh, raise your hands so we can get the, captured a moment. Uh, John Wickman had alluded to our next program, which is Thursday, July 8th, and uh, being Cornet, we truly are a, a global organization. We have guests from Humana coming from uh, all across the country to share their story. Uh, Their corporate real estate division has a unique human capital-based philosophy built around cultural evolution, enhanced employment brand, improving productivity, and using space as a tool to model behaviors. Please join us for an introduction to Humana, an overview of their workplace strategists highlighting a new building, a unique process built around these principles, and how the uh, facility has accommodated change driven by today's economic environment. Our speakers, uh, George Brown coming in from Green Bay, uh, Greg Schaefer coming in from uh, Louisville, and uh, David Cottle from San Diego. Um, next, uh, next week we were supposed to have had t- a uh, presentation for uh, up in Milwaukee and that um, we, uh, we are looking forward to that but however due to some of logistics we are going to postpone that for later in the fall so the details will follow on that as well. Uh, in August there will be no luncheon, however we are planning a, a uh, suburban uh, event and uh, stay tuned for details on that as well. And that takes us to today's program, and a special thank you to R.J. for uh, putting this whole thing together, the group together, and I will turn it over to R.J. now to uh, take it from here.
1: Thanks, Dan. Welcome. Uh, appreciate all of you taking time out of your day to come here for this uh, this program. We have uh, a great, great cast of, and I say a very affectionately, characters. Uh, the... Uh, the time of the 70s and 80s was really more than mood rings, lava lights and Rubik cubes and valley girls, a little bit more deep, intense than that. Through the oil crisis, recessions, stock market crash, military incursions, it was a phenomenal time for development of Chicago's skyscrape and our own rose to the challenge. A list of names of companies that some are here, some are gone, some you may well have forgotten, but definitely a trip through memory lane. Rubloff & Company, JMB Realty Corporation, Buck Philippini and Company, Romanic & Golub, Miglin-Beitler, Homart Development, Urban Investment & Development, Fleetwood Realty, Hawthorne Realty, American Invesco, Tishman Midwest, Fifield Palmer & Company, Hamilton Partners, The Palmer Company, Stein & Company, The Golub Company, and Beitler Real Estate, just to name a few These are all firms that were responsible for developing the skyline that you see every day of the week. With with respect to our panelists, let's suffice it to say that the lifetime achievements of these speakers today in business, civic, and charitable works is as legendary as their development. Allow me to introduce you to each of the the four people. Eugene Golub, Golub and uh, company chairman. Gene is the founder and chairman of a Chicago-based Gollibin Company, over 50 years of experience in owned, developed, operated or leased uh, properties, more than 40 million square feet of office, industrial and mixed use properties, 50,000 multifamily units in the United States and abroad. A very significant uh, uh, um, achievement on Gene's part was in 1989, country Company entered the international marketplace to become the first major U.S. real estate firm to under, undertake development projects in Central and Eastern Europe and Russia. This was just prior to the reemergence of market-driven economies in those regions. So he has, he has claims in the United States and foreign. Just a short list, which kept growing over the course of lunch, of properties that uh, the Gene uh, w- has been involved with. You all are probably familiar with 22 West Washington Street, the... Uh, headquarters for uh, the uh, office of CBS and uh, Morningstar. But there's 625 North Michigan, 680 North Lakeshore Drive, the Streeter Streeter Place uh, residential buildings, the Bristol, 55 West Monroe, previously affectionately known as uh, the Xerox building, uh, 180 North LaSalle, 444 North Michigan, the list goes on and on. J. Paul Beitler, president of Beitler Real Estate. Paul has... Uh, over the, uh, negotiated over 7,000 leases, managed over 30 million square feet of space across 16 states, and developed 10 million square feet of buildings over the past 30 years. He's been recognized as one of Chicago's most influential real estate brokers, well known for acting as the sole broker in the one, one of the largest transactions in the history of Chicago, the long-term lease signed by J.P. Morgan Chase for a million square feet in buildings that Paul developed. 131 South Dearborn Street, Madison Plaza, 181 Ma- uh, West Madison Street, President's Plaza out at O'Hare, Triangle uh, Plaza at O'Hare, LaSalle Bank uh, Operations Center at O'Hare, Chicago Bar Association, Oak Brook Terrace Towers, the tallest building in the suburbs, Museum of Contemporary Art, Vietnam Veterans uh, Art Museum, and then three redevelopments, uh, one North LaSalle, three. Sixty North Michigan, and 1 North Dearborn. Richard Stein, Senior Managing Director, Mesro Financial. Richie is a, excuse me, sorry, Richie merged his namesake firm, Stein & Company, with Mesero in 1997. He has over 45 years of experience in the industry, and there's some great stories back there if you can get him to talk about them. He's completed real estate projects valued at more than 100 billion dollars as developer, design builder, owner's representative and program manager in a short list of the buildings that he's been involved with again shaping the skyline. AT&T Corporate Center, USG building, 203 North LaSalle, the Loop Transportation Building, University of Chicago Gleacher Center, the Lyric Civic, I'm sorry, the Lyric Opera House remodeling, two uh, McCormick Place expansions the Metcalf building in the Federal Plaza. The, and he's been involved in multiple air base closures, including Glenview Naval Air Station redevelopment. More than $2.5 billion of condominium sales. He's developed, in fact, the building that I live in up on North Lake Shore Drive was his redevelopment. Uh, and developed more than 17,000 residential units in the t- uh, town of Fort Sheridan, and most recently in the University of Illinois at Chicago, a $500 million mixed use development on the near south side. Last, but most certainly not least, my dear friend Rick Abraham, Richard Abraham Company, LLC, he's the president. Rick is a speaker, writer, and consultant widely sought after by many Fortune 500 companies. His highly acclaimed book, Mr. Schmooze, The Art and Science of Selling Through Relationships, is a composite character of the most successful and gregarious salespeople in America. I checked it out this morning. You can go online when you get back to your office and buy it on Amazon with delivery tomorrow. Rick brings tremendous credentials and experience to today's talk. A little of his background, he was president and co-founder of the John Buck Management Group. He was president of the CB Commercial Coal Management Services who oversaw over 300 million square foot uh, portfolio of office retail and industrial properties throughout the United States. And he was also the CEO of Prime Prime Group Realty Services. Please join me in welcoming our panelists.
2: we'll make sure the mics work. Can you hear, people hear me out there? Okay. I've got about two minutes of remarks, and then we're going to get to the stars. And I'm glad RJ was able to cover the formal uh, introductions, because literally we could sit here for about an hour and really get into it in terms of the accomplishments of these three men. They've been so significant and they've been going on for such a long time, but I know you want to hear from these people and we're going to get, that, get into that in a minute. So you can really see by looking at these three gentlemen, we're talking about very distinguished men, men that have been uh, contributing to Chicago history and legacy of the city for a long time, but it wasn't always that way. <laughs>
3: This thing works.
2: And, <laughs> and I did look back into the book we, did, we were just talking about called They Built Chicago. And of course, I actually know some of these anecdotes personally, having dealt with all three of these fellows personally from time to time. But there is a common thread that runs through. First of all, as you probably know or if you've done any research, all three of these fellows were basically handed their first deals. In other words, they sort of came into the business wealthy and ready to go, <laughs> correct? Right. <laughs> Matt. Pretty much first generation material here and let's take a look at a couple of the things that you might see going through the personalities of people like these that are developers and risk takers and true entrepreneurs. So starting with Gene, it says Gene Golub uh, was born and raised in the neighborhood around 18th Street and Lawndale that Gollub remembers as the Jewish (laughs) ghetto in Chicago. (laughs) South Lawndale, Lawndale, he says, was a place where a boy growing up during the Depression and war years either came out a hero or wound up in jail. (laughs) Gene, in his own words, said, I was always hustling. He was in his first year at Roosevelt University when his father died and he had to drop out to support his greater family. He said, I was in action. I was always in action. Even at a young age, I never worked for anyone. The only job I ever really had was a job in high school selling shoes. The action for Golub in the 1950s included selling used cars, setting up going out of business sales and eventually going into the hat business with a Lebanese partner. A little later on in his career uh, when Romanic and Golub was cooking, uh, Gene re- mentioned something when um, he was asked in the early 1970s and that's when I met Gene and of course as a young Mm. property manager I'm getting a paycheck so I'm feeling everything. hungry dory I'm working for IBM as far as I'm concerned and somebody said to Gene um, in the 1970s were you ever on the brink financially and Gene replied all the time. (laughs) 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 He describes himself in that period as being somewhat of a rainmaker getting people to the table and bringing in investors for projects And here's really the key, relationships was the way we did deals. Meanwhile, turning to Paul um, in the book, they talk a little bit about Paul coming together with Miglin. It says, J. Paul Beitler was an aggressive young broker at Rubloff who had tried his hand in several other enterprises before discovering real estate. Beitler, a Detroit native uh, and graduate of Michigan State, Vietnam veteran and trained as a helicopter and turbo jet pilot, and I want to mention something. My father, Paul, about two years ago, they found him from World War II, and they had a big ceremony giving him a bronze star, and the general at that ceremony said, for all you civilians, this is a big deal, and Paul earned a bronze star in the service. Anyway. Paul kept saying that he too wanted to move into development, and Miglin said, let's go. And he said he found out Beitler had no problem with the requirements of development. He was a very, very persistent guy, says Miglin. Started a project at 5 in the morning generally, worked till midnight. And when he couldn't get me, he'd leave messages on my wall, stuck up there with pins. So I I quickly found out why he'd been the top producer at Rubloff for four years in a row. (laughs) Thanks. So you can kind of see the personalities working here. And we get over now to Rich, and I love this. It says here, um, Rich grew up in a colorful era in Chicago history among larger than life characters who played the ponies and still remembered Elliot Ness. (laughs) It said, even while surveying the city from his suite of offices on the 34th floor at AT AT&T, Richard does not lose sight of the fact that he began his development career remodeling two flats on Chicago's west side. I was always afraid I would go broke, he says, and I still think that every time, that it's my last big deal, that I'll never do anything bigger. Every year I'm going to go broke. But you can't hold back the tides or the sun in the morning, he says. A recession is a recession, isn't that prescient. But you can reduce your exposure by bringing professionalism and control to a project. So once again, a round of applause for these amazing gentlemen. So let's go around the horn here a little bit, and we're going to do a little past, present, future, and in the end we'll ask them to give us some advice as we are forging ahead into somewhat difficult economic times. But in the beginning, you know, you're surveying the landscape. Uh, what, What are the things that you saw, because each of you came into the business at a different time, and so you're thinking, okay, I could go into a number of different businesses, I could do a number of different things, but here I am in Chicago, development is tugging at my sleeve. What pulled you in? Rich, why don't we start with you?
4: You know, uh, serendipitous. All this stuff is really all by accident. You know, I went to University of Chicago Law School for two weeks. I quit, needed to work. Met a guy, uh,
1: uh,
4: sold coal and oil for him. Met a kid on the West Side, uh, Ray Klein, who was developing real estate, and two flats and six flats. And uh, we had a mentor, Jerry, uh, Jack Alter, uh, at the Carriage House, and we'd meet there every morning. Uh, and that's how I got in the real estate business. I think, you know, Gene was mentioning, one guy off that list uh, was Jerry Wexler, who uh, really made an impact on Chicago, too, and probably should be on that list. At any rate, you know, um, two flats, four flats, six flats. I think, you know, the old axiom is the harder you work, the luckier you get, but I do think that there's something interesting to observe about the three of us and other real estate guys in Chicago, many of whom you mentioned, is that um, it's a pretty well-knit type of fraternity in Chicago. Everybody gets along. Might not be best friends, but everybody gets along. I think that all of us have tried to do the right thing. And I think that's why uh, whatever success we've had is because we've had lots of people helping us. Nobody built a building with their own hands, but it's relationships. i got to tell you something, uh, a quick story. Okay. 1985... And there's an article in Crane's <laughs> about Gene Gollum. And it was not a nice article. And I read this article, and I thought, and Gene and I weren't intimate, but we knew each other. That this, this is a really nice guy, and this is a really nasty article. And they said some things that were, didn't need to be said. I wrote a letter to the editor. Never published the letter to the editor, but about three weeks later, they wrote a very nice article about it. Something that my mother couldn't have written anything better. So my point is what goes around comes around. And I think that um, this city is different in the respect that New York is a big, tough, tight city. Uh, Here, not that 25 million isn't a lot, but you could buy a quarter of a block for 25 million and build a building. Whereas in New York, you couldn't. So back in the 80s when we were going, there was nobody in New York who wasn't second or third generation, and I looked around once giving a speech, Gene was first uh, generation, Paul was, we all were. So I just think it's a great city with a lot
3: of support.
2: Great.
3: I don't think I answered the question. Oh,
2: that's okay. Well, that's okay, that's what we were saying. <laughs> <laughs> that's so what I wanted better to bettered my around. question, so that's good. Gene?
3: I, I was going to say, you didn't answer the question.
2: <laughs> Take over, Gene.
3: What's the question?
2: <laughs> <laughs> How did you jump jump into this silly business?
3: That's a good question. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I really don't know. As you were saying, I I, I guess somehow I've always been entrepreneurial, and I never really did work for anyone. And uh, (coughs) uh, I was doing all kinds of different things, and I had a very good friend, Marv Romanek, and Marv was also doing all kinds of stuff. And one day we just... He, he started something, and, and I was sort of watching, and we got together, and there was a, an attorney by the name of Ernie Greenberger from the <coughs> law firm that now is, uh, I don't even think it exists anymore, but Greenberger, Kraus, and Jacobs. <coughs> and uh, the two buildings that you did, those condos at uh, 860 Lakeshore Drive? Nine hundred and 900. I mean 900. Who was the original developer? The guy, that died well, the, no, the guy that died in the airplane crash. Oh, this goes oh, back a long yeah. time. Right. This, this is old history. Uh, anyway, anyway, so one, one thing minutes, led like to another. Second. And uh, before I turned around, I was going to the, the uh, Central YMCA to get a broker's license. <clears throat> I'll never forget it. Central Y. Central YMCA. I tried to go to Roosevelt University, but they wouldn't accept me because... I my grades my, for half a year that I was there weren't good enough. So I did Central YMCA I became a broker and uh, Marvin and I just started to do deals and like really some of the first big deals we did like a building like Harbor House at thirty two hundred Lakeshore Drive, which was you know I will tell a very intimate story. Uh we had to tie up this land and uh I was about to buy a house, I had a few bucks, like $18,000, saved up, <clears throat> and I said to my wife at the time, I'm going to put a deposit on, on this land. Of course, this, this is a story where you got to have the elements of your spouse and everybody else <laughs> working with you in order to be successful. And uh, and I did it. And uh, I'll never forget going into the First National Bank, and Marv and I were getting a loan to close this deal for $400,000. And we went to this banker, and the banker said, okay, I'll be there. And the old First National Bank going down the escalator, you know, we're going down the escalator, and I'll never forget saying to Marvin, I said, "Uh, you know, we don't have anything in writing. (laughs) He says, do you want to go back and ask him for something? I said, no. (laughs) 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 No, (laughs) and he showed up, and that's what started the whole thing. You know, you just get that one deal under your belt. Not that the deal was so successful, but it was. We got it done, and and over the years, what the the morality of the business, like you talked about, there is a good, there is a morality to this business, and uh, and it's the people, and uh, you just you do the right thing, and you know sometimes good things happen.
2: All right, now before Jay Paul gets into this, uh, there's a generational thing here a little bit. The, the generations are like half generations, but I was working with uh, Marv and Gene, and we had just had a, a very nice project with the Xerox Center, but then we went to three O'Hare Towers, and we put up a project out there, out there that may or may not have been to that standard, and Marv came over one day, and I was out there, and he said, hey, let's walk over and see what this new guy, Beitler's doing over at Presidential. <laughs> because he had just gotten in, which he'll tell you in a minute, and we walked over there, and Marvin looked up and looked around, and he said, and I can't repeat his exact words, he said, we're in freaking trouble. (laughs) So there was a new sheriff in town. It always gets better with each generation, so Paul, take off.
5: Well, I had been newly married and lost my job two weeks after being married, which was very tough. So I turned to my wife and I said, you know, I'm tired of being poor. Where do the rich people come from? (laughs) So we drove down to the library, and we got out books on rich people. <laughs> and we started looking at all the rich people in the world. Well, there were basketball players, and doctors, and lawyers, and corporate executives, and stockbrokers. And I said, no, I, I'm not very good at entertaining. My song and dance is terrible. And I can't do stocks and bonds and so forth. And finally, real estate. And I said to myself, now, real estate, that's something I think I can do. So I went around and I interviewed with a bunch of residential people, none of whom wanted to hire me, and I interviewed with a group of commercial people, Arthur Rubloff and Company, Helmsley Spear, some others, and finally at Helmsley Spear, they offered me a job to be a leasing broker with no training. I shared a desk with three other guys and six guys to one secretary, and I got $300 a month in draw, can you imagine that? I said, boy, I'm king of the road, we're gonna do this. So finally, uh, after several really tough years at Helmsley Spear, I ended up joining Arthur Rubloff and Company where I met a, a really a terrific dynamo by the name of Goldie Wolf. And Goldie and I partnered up, and I'm telling you, you talk about a bowling pin and a bowling ball, I mean, the two of us were invincible. So we started working on every possible deal in town and we ended up working with Jerry Hines on three First National. And between the two of us, we were successful working together and competing against each other and loving each other and hating each other. We leased a lot of the building and it was a hard job. And finally I turned to Goldie and I said, you know, Goldie, I'm tired of filling other people's buildings and making them rich. I said, yeah, I'm in this business to get rich. They're rich and I'm just making a commission. She says, well, why don't you become a developer? And I said, you know, that's a great idea. (laughs) So with that, I quit and became a developer. And I marched over to Lee Miglin's office, who at the time was the only developer at Arthur Rubloff & Company. And I said to him, listen, I want to become a developer. I I want to work with you and learn how to be a developer. And like Donald Trump, he turns and says, well, what's in it for me? So finally, it took a number of weeks to get his attention. And I couldn't get his attention. So I went next door to what was a, um, oh, what stop and shop. You remember stop and shop in yeah. the corner? And I got a whole big roll of freezer paper. And I covered every inch of his wall in his office one night when he was gone. And I thumbtacked the freezer paper up. And I got a big can of red paint. And I painted all over his walls higher... Feitler developer now. (laughs) And I went all the way around his office. Well, the next morning, everybody came in, saw it, and ooh, you know, nobody said anything. And I slunk into my office through the back door. And you know that guy for one week came to his office every day and didn't say a word? (laughs) (laughs) You have to understand, Lee Miglin was a pretty demure guy, you know. I wouldn't step on an ant. And I'm sitting there going, oh, my God, this guy's going to kill me. Finally, at the end of the week, he invited me in and he said, Okay, you've got my attention, but here's what you have to do. You have to quit being a broker. You can't make any commissions. You have to work for free, and you're going to work really hard. And maybe you might make a living in a couple of years. And I said, If that's what it takes, that's what I'm going to do. And that's how I got started. There you go.
2: Well, time went on, and uh, you each. I'm sure you've found yourselves in front of lenders pitching and selling and trying to convince people to back you as opposed to your competitors. And there's a lot of people out here who are new business development people who own companies. And I would really like to understand how folks get it done at high levels. And so I would ask this question. And um, let's keep these particular answers just somewhat brief only because I've got a number of questions to go. And I know these guys want to hear it. What made you different? What made you special? Why were you appealing to a particular lender when you stepped up, Gene? Let's start with
3: you. Well, uh, we were young and we were aggressive and we were a little different, mm-hmm. and uh, had a little bit different type of personality and a sort of different way of conducting ourselves. There was a at time at that time there was a real establishment. This goes back over fifty years ago. There was an establishment of real estate in Chicago real, old-line establishment. As a matter of fact, uh, I was once accused by this establishment of being nouveau riche, and I once told a lender, I said, how can this guy say that about me? I've had money for two years now, (laughs) (laughs) which was true, which was true, but there was an old establishment, and we were we were a little different, very young, and we had a lot of we were like the, the, really the first group to start bringing in women into real estate, into commercial, into commercial area. You remember that? Sure. We had women commercial managers and women commercial brokers. And uh, they were very, very successful. And uh, we we're just different yeah. and had a different style about ourselves. Paul? I remember meeting my first
5: lender. He said to me, if you can guess which one of my eyes is a glass eye, I'll give you the loan. <laughs> I looked and looked and finally I said, it's your right eye. He said, that's right, that's right. He said, how did you know? You guessed, didn't you? I said, no. I said, it was the warmer looking of the two.
3: We had it easy.
5: We really had it easy, honestly. We could do 100% spec buildings. Lenders were lending over 100% on the buildings. Fleetwood Realty was getting 120% of their loans from Continental Bank. It was incredible. And uh, what was really unique about the three of us is that we were developers that were new to the scene. You had the corporate developers, Northern Trust, Harris Bank, IBM, Sears and Company. And they were backed by tons of money and the best architects and so forth. But we were really wildcatters, especially Gene. Gene was really the first to really step up and be a wildcatter. And, he hired uh, Harry Weiss and they did 180 North LaSalle and that was a big deal at the time, very big deal. And uh, I remember I worked on that as, as a broker and, and uh, to me, Gene Golub and, and Marv Romanek were gods. I mean, they really were out there on the vanguard uh, with no net underneath them. You know? And that's the thing about being a developer. It's easy when you have a net under you, it isn't when you don't. And so we could go to lenders and we could say, look, we have a better idea we're going to present a better product, we're going to appeal to certain levels of tenants. And we sold our hearts out to these people and we made them believers in what we were doing. And that's really what got it started. And I'll tell you, it's really an art. I wish I could sit as a fly on the wall and watch my friends here when they're negotiating deals and leases and and loans. It is amazing, it's amazing. Mm
1: -hmm. Good, Rich?
4: Well. Depends on how, how far you want to go back. Because in the beginning, we have to go to the banks and, and sell ourselves to the banks. And it was really personal relationships. You know, Norm Bobbins was, you know, just above doing car loans at the American National a long time ago. And a by the name of Perry Steinerman, you might know. So these folks, over the years, would provide references. I mean, Perry Steinerman used to go and they'd say, well, who's going to guarantee it? Perry says, I'll guarantee him. Well, neither of us had any money. But uh, <laughs> those, those relationships worked, and they're still friendly with those folks today. But <clears throat> as we get on, get, went on to the bigger deals, we pretty much relied on uh, uh, mortgage brokers. Uh, uh, today, you know, you got investment bankers, etc. But uh, Draper and Kramer, uh, uh, Dove and Mule, uh, people that would introduce us. Uh, and you just had to have the right product. You had to show that you had the ability to get creditworthy tenants that would support the debt. Sometimes we had to have them. Most of the times we didn't. But you had to have a good story. You had to build on everything you did. And I think we all leveraged off of people that we knew and we had relationships with. I think there's other folks respected. There's there's no magic to it. Uh, and sometimes you beat out your competition. Sometimes you don't. But when it when the times are good, when FHA wants to loan money, whatever that 2013 form is or something they have, every deal works. And when it's tough, you've got to get out there with everybody else and scrap.
2: And, you know, that's a great segue because um, each of these fellows has diversified over the years. What you find out when, when you run your own business, and I got into it later in my career running a different kind of business, but, you know, you've got to scramble. So yes, you want to build great buildings, but then the recession hits. What else do you have in terms of revenue generation and so forth? And so um, I know that Paul put a great deal of concentration on property management. Of course, Rich pretty much pioneered the whole public sector thing, and then Gene went overseas. And so I, I would like to maybe touch base on that. Paul, I love you because I, was a, I came up through property <laughs> management, and you were really the first developer who went manic on property <laughs> management. <laughs> yeah. So you and I have always had a bond on that. Just tell people why yeah. that got your attention and why you were so fanatical about it.
5: Well, we wanted to create a niche for ourselves in the marketplace and it was really hard. Uh, LaSalle Partners was dominating the brokerage area. Um, Other firms were dominating in other areas and Lee and I were relatively new. And so we decided that what we do is we go into an area that was considered the ugly sister or ugly duckling of the business, which was management. And we were gonna turn that into something that would be really special. And we decided that we would, treat our buildings and manage and maintain our buildings as though they were our homes. And we just broke our backs to do the things that others wouldn't do. Little things, for example. At the anniversary of every lease, we'd go up to the uh, president of the company and present him with a bottle of Dom Perignon, thanking him for being a tenant in the building, but also it gave us a chance to at least meet him once a year and say, hey, would you like to renew your lease? We provided car washing in the basement, and we put the little tags on the mirrors so that uh, once you got your car washed, then you could write in and and you could say, well, my wash was good, bad, or indifferent. And I remember one day, Donald Rumsfeld uh, came over looking for space, he was uh, leaving government, and um, it was was really unique because I said to him, may I have your car keys? And he looked at me like I was gonna steal his car. (laughs) And uh, he said, here, and I gave him the car keys and he went down and we showed him space and he came back and I gave him the car keys after his car was washed. Lo and behold, two weeks later in the mail, I get his card signed by Donald Rumsfeld, great car wash, so forth. Needless to say, we put that in plastic and put it on the front desk. <laughs> but uh, as you, then what happened when, when the economy collapsed the last time around, all of us and everybody became managers. And, um, and then when the REITs came, in order to provide a return to investors, management came in-house and they used the management fees as a return on investment. And I think as a result of that, a lot of the things that had been started uh, competitively in management were lost, and it became just a, another thing that you did in real estate.
2: Just a quickie. Uh some of you may know Mark Case who worked for Paul and was a property manager. And he tells a story about Paul would come out to presidential plaza, look things over, and he'd sometimes come out in his helicopter. <laughs> and he'd land and he'd get mad because the stones in the driveway weren't quite flat and so forth. They were always afraid to tell him it was because of his helicopter. <laughs> he'd be coming in and blowing the stones around. So, Rich, um, and I know a couple of times when the, the public stuff started heating up around here, I was in charge of new business development at Buck. And we'd see something come up, and I'd go into Buck's office and say, hey, we ought to go after that. And he goes, forget about it. Richie's chasing it. So somehow you really cornered that public sector thing. How did you do that? Because there's people here that chase public business, and there's an art to that as well, is there not?
4: Well, let me first say that, you know, my partner, Mike Skotolsky, is here, and he probably you know, doesn't like some of the things I say because, you know, Mike can do everything I can do better than I can do it, except bullshit. <laughs> And, and, and fortunately, as these guys will tell you, it's, it's, it's still required in some respects. <laughs> but actually, it really started with the condo conversions. There was a guy by the name, Jim Harper, at the Continental Bank. Oh, yeah. And you know whatever success we've had, I always say it was because of him. He just loaned us money, he believed in what we were doing, and the condo conversions were absolutely the easiest. You didn't have to buy the land, hire an architect, zone it, finance it, you just buy it and sell it to the people that are in there. And it was pretty easy and good at that time. I was just trying to think when you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you first asked that question, Rick, um, to Paul as to what our first public-private job was. But let me say this. We've always liked to compete. <clears throat> excuse me. You know, a lot of MBA engineers, MBA architects, and for some reason, we like to go over the, after these things that were kind of crazy and you had to compete at. And I had real good people with me and us, Mike, being one and others, and Mike Tracy who was here today, and we like to compete. Uh, it was, I, I hate to tell you, it, it's, it's, I fervently believe that it's fun to win. People accuse me uh, sometimes, and sometimes some partners, maybe rightly so that we don't care how much money we make. We want to try to do it right. We want to win. OK, that's first, then you try to do it right. But somehow, I, I, it's a bad answer because once we did one and we saw these things coming up, and of course, it's a space that not everyone is in. All we had, you know,
0: Jerry Hines.
4: I, I can't be Jerry Hines, but I go somewhere and I'm competing with his number seven guy. And I might, <coughs> me, I might be better than his number seven. So. When it's in your own town, we tried to go out of town <clears throat> and we had some victories out of town. But let me tell you something, you learn a lesson every time you're out of town. We won a job in the West Coast, I won't say where, to do a stadium and three days later, they gave it to the local guy. This is after we'd won, you know. So uh, it's, it's real hard for, happen? real hard for folks, you know, from Chicago, you figure you, you know the way. But I, I really wish I could say where it was, but once we started, It was just something we gravitated to. I must say that Julia Stash is now with the MacArthur Foundation. um, She probably helped. Julie started as my assistant, wound up being the president of the company. And probably all of you know her. Um, uh, And uh, it was, uh, I I don't have a better answer for you, but it becomes contagious. You want to compete and some of it's a lot of wheel spinning. There's a lot of time and effort. We don't do base closures anymore. You got to have. Huge amounts of money, you've got to have huge companies. There's only five or six companies that are doing all these base closures and uh, multi hundreds of millions of dollar contracts for government housing. So you just can't go into that space sometimes unless you're really one of those those large, large folks.
2: But I think I think just for those of you listening, they really actually hit on a classic note that I think everybody up here would agree with. You know, if you're if you're early stage evolution of your company and you're running up against the industry leaders find a niche, you know, so your number one is going up against their number six because you're not going to beat them one on one for a while until you get your own momentum going. So Gene decides to go overseas and of all places Eastern Europe and Russia and he actually wrote a book, by the way, that's a very interesting book and and about just his emotions I think that have to do with Europe and so forth. So what got you over there?
3: Well, let's plug my book first. (laughs) What's All proceeds name? go to charity. What's uh, the name of your book? Again? The book is called Protocol. P-R-O-T. Yeah,
2: Protocol. I don't know how to spell it.
3: K-O-L, as in protocol. No, but uh, what prompted us to go to Europe or to Eastern Europe uh, was just entrepreneurship, uh, finding a market. Uh, in the late 80s, things were horrible. There was no development. A lot of stuff was going on, and a few guys got an idea about going to Europe for EU-92, which was going to be the whole big thing about European Union in 1992. And uh, that's what started it. And uh, one thing led to another, because I could talk about this for days, but one thing led to another, and we ended up, uh, doing our first project in Warsaw, and, uh, uh, and I personally uh, spent a lot of time. I had something like, on one passport I had 80 entries into Warsaw. Uh, the, <clears throat> the thing that prompted me personally to want to do things in Europe was that gray hair counted. very, very different kind of culture. And uh, the thing that turned me on also was the fact that uh, I was at an age in, in our company where uh, I couldn't go to another meeting with a 28 year old MBA. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just I just didn't enjoy it anymore. you know. First of all, they were all smarter than me, and they knew more than me and uh, And when I went to Europe, gray hair really counted. You got a lot of respect, you know. Uh, <laughs> So, the, um, when, at the time we went there, it was just right after the, uh, the wall came down, the Berlin Wall came down. And uh, there was a lot of opportunity there. And, but the barriers to entry were tremendous. I mean, there were real barriers. And one of the great barriers that there was is there was no capital available to go do development deals in Eastern or Central Europe. And uh, there just wasn't any. Can you imagine? A lender in the United States or executive risk officer going in front of a board and saying, "I'm going to uh, loan fifty million dollars for a project in Warsaw." <laughs> you know why would they do that? you know there's no no reason for it, so there really wasn't any any capital when we first went there, but the uh, finding the money we our first deal, as a matter of fact, we did with the International Finance Corporation, which was part of the World Bank. Well, I had heard of the World Bank, and I'm sure everybody knows about the World Bank, but I don't think most people know what the World Bank does. The World Bank provides capital for things that can't, if can't find capital for, for infrastructure in third world countries and things of that sort. And uh, one of the th- prohibit, one of the things they prohibited was that. They would not finance an office building. So we were lucky. We found uh, one of the guys at the IFC was a Greek guy, and he was really very, very, very smart. And He said, well, you got to have office buildings, and they financed an office building for us, which was really terrific. And that's how we first got the capital to start in Poland. And from there on, it just went on and on and on, and I can... It was great. It was great. It was great for me personally, for the experiences and the people and the things that happened. And we did a project in St. Petersburg, Russia, and now I realize that the documents for our incorporation, because St. Petersburg, the city was our partner, Putin signed the, 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 uh, the documentation. Do you have but, that? Yeah, I have
2: it. Okay. I can't read it, but That's I have what, it. I mean, <laughs> kind of an point, I'd frame it, you know. You know? Yeah. Frame it. Frame it, yeah. 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 Those are great. So, uh, RJ talked in the beginning about sort of the rich history of Chicago. We all know it in terms of architecture, but also in development. So, we've had Bill Sanders, we've had uh, all these, these fellows, Bernie Weisberg, lots of uh, very important people. So, besides the folks sitting next to you on the panel, Anybody out there just jump into your mind and say, you know what, I really admire his body of work. That was really neat the way he put it all together. Somebody said Jerry Wexler. Paul, who, who jumps to mind when you think, yeah, those are people I admire?
5: Well, one of them is Richie Stein. I know this sounds really crazy, but um, he, was, he was unbelievable when he with her started off doing buildings. Um, what made him so difficult was to compete against was first of all, he would do a first class project, which was always tough. But then secondly, he had a marketing program and, a, and an eye for marketing that just knocked everybody off their feet. We couldn't compete with it. He hired Harvey Haddon. We'd come in with a toothbrush, he'd come in with a tooth bottle the size of the Empire State Building. Um, and the other thing that happened that was interesting is that there was competition, pardon me for diverting little oh, bit. there was a lot of competition between us other than just buildings. We were fighting to get into the press, into the media, because at the time, the Tribune, the Sun-Times, Dave Roeder was very prominent writing uh, during this period of time. Uh, we were really fighting to get bylines so that we could have our buildings out in front of people. And I'll never forget one morning, I uh, was handed a Crane Chicago Business publication, and on the headline, it read, Mr. Wonderful. And then it was a story about Richie Stein. <laughs> and this reporter walked around with Richie Stein, and Richie Stein did this, and Richie Stein did that. you remember that, Richie?
4: But that was because they did a story that was out of line about Gene, and I happened to write a <laughs> letter. I really believe that's why. <laughs> I'll, I, uh,
3: I'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> that's the very sense. nice
5: that you say that. You're you overly, overly that, kind in your remarks. I'm telling Richie Stein, we couldn't compete. We couldn't get any newspaper. It, you know, it was, it was um, unbelievable, and he did a great job and did some really wonderful buildings. There really are, interestingly, very, very few uh, developers uh, from Chicago. I think, unquestionably, Jerry Hines has done a wonderful job. He started a tradition that was tough to follow. Uh, The best architects, the best buildings, bringing art, public art, to each of the buildings in, in a way that had never been done before. The city had done it with Picasso, of course, But if you walk around Chicago, we are so lucky. We're rich with some of the best art pieces by the 20th century modern masters. And uh, each of the developers continued in that genre. Uh, In particular, Richie had uh, Frank Stella. uh, And that's an amazing piece that you you guys did. So sorry for a long answer to a short question, but uh, there really are very few.
2: Rich? Anybody pop into your head that, well, first that was of all, inspiring to you? When
4: Gene did Xerox Center, I was pushing six flats around. How did he get the money to do that building? <laughs> and Xerox, said, I I I was not in that milieu. And Paul, you know, when <clears throat> you look at most developers, they come from the brokerage side. You control the tenants, you can do the deals. And Paul always had that. And and I and I thought that was gonna. You know, Great, great. Um, I, Jerry Wexler, who did a lot of things, was, it sticks out in my mind in following reasons. Out of Drive East, there was nothing out there. You know, none of those buildings were out there. He built a uh, uh, McClure Court. McClure Court was the first time, I think, uh, they cobbled together 15 savings and loans out of New York. You know, and he did all this business. <clears throat> out of his car while he was changing his clothes uh eh, <coughs> for to play tennis. So he and he was corporate, but yet he 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 did he did all those things. And uh, I used to try to keep score. A couple of lawyers I knew that Jerry knew anything. Where was Jerry when he was twenty-eight? Where was Jerry when he was thirty? I kept pushing, but I can never get even close. But he sticks out because of the kind of uh, character it was. And uh, I think those buildings <clears throat> were significant uh, for their time and were breakthroughs as it relates to product type, zoning, and opening up new area. Okay,
3: great. Gene? You know, I, on, that, on that score, it's not so much. I, I like that for some of the younger people out here. Uh, I, I remember when I was younger, and uh, used to say, how did they get that deal. You know, it's just like, how did they get that deal? Well, how come we didn't get that deal? How come we didn't get that assignment? How come Rubloff got this? How did this? How did that? And it was always very frustrating. And I realized, and, and the thing that you have to realize is that it just takes time. You got to hang in. If you're going to be in the real estate business, you got to be there for a long period of time. You know, I have a lot of friends who are uh, commodity brokers and things of that sort, where that business is. You know, two seconds or one minute. Our business is very long-term, really long-term, and if you want to really hang in, you got to have a long-term attitude, and you got to take the slings and arrows, and I can guarantee eventually it comes around. It comes around. If you're doing your job, and if you really have the, the, the moral attitude of really wanting to do business in a good way, you'll get the business. You know, it's, you know the old story, knocking on doors. And, but it, it will come to you.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, let's, let's switch a little bit now forward-looking. We know we're caught in a difficult time right now in real estate, but you know, this too shall pass, I suppose. But in the meantime, uh, you know, what kind of trends are you all seeing that if and when the time comes where it's going to start cooking again, you're going to have to take these trends into consideration, whether it's technology or the way people are working or the way people are living? Anything popping up that you're saying, you know, we better keep an eye on that? And again, Paul, you're right next to me. Why don't we start with you?
5: Well, you take it by category and you say, what's going on right now and what's hopefully going to go on in the future? Uh, I'm very fortunate because my discipline of real estate is office buildings as, as in large measure what my colleagues are involved with. And fortunately, this time around, we haven't overbuilt so that the... The thing that we're waiting for now is demand. And once demand increases a little bit, there's going to be an, an enormous requirement for new office buildings. I mean, let's think about it for a moment. The last new building was built two years ago and it will take another three years to build a new one. So we're five years away from having a new office building with a new technology. Uh, when the last office building was built, no one heard the word green or lead and now today we have these wonderful things that we can incorporate in a building. I think retail is flat, it's going to be flat for a long time until people get expendable spendable income back. I think industrial is in the same quagmire. Uh, we're flush with a lot of industrial buildings right now. We're waiting for mer- m- manufacturing people to come back in to the industry to help that demand. The hotel and hospitality industry is flat right now for the same reason. It tends to be very volatile like the commodity business. So I think the, the strongest trends I see right now are going in the
4: area of office buildings. Okay. Rich? I'm still trying to think of a developer of 909, Lakeshore Drive. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to give me five minutes, but I, I haven't been able to come up with it.
3: It was Barney Weisbord, who was his attorney.
4: Right, he was the guy's attorney. The guy got killed a plane crash. It
3: was right. Greenbaum, wasn't
4: it? Greenbaum, yes.
5: hey. right, you it. It. What was it? We get it worked out. See you. Yeah. you
3: that's what it is. Yeah, You're yeah. so much younger than me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell
4: you a funny story about that building. You go in, and there's all this uh, Assori, this uh, green, beautiful green, dark marble that, that, that uh, Mies van der Rohe always used. And t- even today, when you look at it, it's like four by six sheets. And, you know, Mies did that, so now every building you go in is four by six sheets. That's the only size it came in. Okay, so some of these, these things build up. Um, what was the question? <laughs>
2: looking ahead, looking oh, ahead, uh, you see anything? You know, else? I I
4: think I echo I agree with with Paul's remarks. You know, both of you, they build out of town. We have done out of town, but not a whole lot of stuff. Pretty Chicago centric. And you know, we, in, in 2007, um, rents in New York went up by more than we get. They went from 80 to 110. We only got 30. AT&T, 15 years ago, we're getting about what we got today. So it's not a big margin town, it's kind of a tough town <coughs> in some respects. But at the same time, technology, things are gonna change, everybody's not gonna work for their home. Social, of course, is still a great thing. People have to be in vital areas, and people want new, efficient buildings. It's amazing how the three new products that are up compared to a building that's 15 or 18 years old, eight, nine, 10% more efficient, how you can run the building for maybe 80 to a buck and a half less because of the change in glass and other things. So I think Chicago will see more buildings, and people do want Class A. And there's a lot of Class B and C sublets, but a lot of people don't want to be in Class B and C. You look at the people that are taking the new space, Intellectual capital. All these young folks—they're not going to work in a building that only, you know, that's 76 degrees on a hot day. Intellectual capital—very expensive, very competitive. All the finance. So, I think the office market, over a period of time, will come back. I think I agree with uh, the retail um, and the residential. You know, it's uh, amazing. I uh, talk to people doing rental buildings, and you look uh, like over at Illinois Center. Uh, Jim Loewenberg, and you look at who is renting the bill. Illinois, Indiana, Ohio, Michigan, Iowa. Where are these young people gonna go? They're not gonna stay in Cleveland. They're coming here because it's a vibrant city, and it's really made some tremendous, tremendous strides. And then you look at the condos, when we used to sell condos, more importantly, when we used to be able to close what we sold, but (laughs) but, uh, uh, where are these people coming from? They want to see their grandkids. They want to come in. They want a place to stay, or they want to, want to, want to move here. So I think overall, Chicago has, has a great future. I think political leadership is very important. We like business we like uh, uh, Certainty, and so that's very important. But who would think that you would plant flowers in all the medians in Chicago? Ten, 15 years ago, who would think you'd plant flowers and they wouldn't pick them all? <laughs> you know, why does the guy get out of the AT&T truck and he puts that little orange cone behind the, behind the truck. You know. It's like what you write in part in search of excellence. Having people do good things and so I think there's a good future
1: here.
3: Okay. Gene? Uh, you think about the future, I, it, it's, you know, my belief is that uh, you just have to be entrepreneurial and think out of the box. I have no idea what the future is going to be. I don't know if office buildings will be good or if rental buildings will be good, et cetera, et cetera. What you got to do is you got to say, okay, where's the opportunity? And the opportunities just show up. You got to think about where they might be and act on it. And you can't, it's hard to predict. You can't predict what's going to happen. It, you just have to move along and move along with the
2: flow. So. Okay. RJ, what are we looking at on this, on the reverse side of this? I just want to make sure I'm on, uh, we're looking at 1.30? Yeah, okay, so just a couple more questions. I just didn't, I wanted to make sure I wasn't breaking protocol. So um, let's, let's go back to the young people for a second that are in the audience. Um, knowing what you know now, you know you know a lot, you've been around. Uh, if you were to start over again today, whether it's in terms of their education or going back to school after they've been in business for a while or, or anything that you can think of, what would you recommend to these people that they sort of add to their um, skill set that will would help them along now that you've kind of been through the traps. Paul, buy something.
5: <laughs> Go out tomorrow morning and buy something. I don't care if it's a three flat, a one flat, a garage, buy something. Because once you do, you'll start an education that you couldn't get in any MBA program on how real estate works, on how to be an entrepreneur, and how to create value. And uh, Gene and uh, Rich and I have learned that uh, empirically, we've had to go out and, and find ways to create value, and that has been our driving motivation. And uh, If you don't have that motivation, then clearly this isn't an industry for you. But once you do create that value, the wonderful thing about real estate is is that it rewards you handsomely. It's banks, no question about it, but it does reward.
2: That was well said. Rich?
4: Well, you know, I remember my dad died when I was 22. But I remember several things. And one of them was, never work for anybody. Own a peanut stand. Maybe you can have two or three. Now, this is before franchising. Easier, <laughs> e- easier said than done, but it was interesting. And I think it, it ties into what, what, what Paul said, you know, buy something. But, you know, and I'm looking around, and I don't, you know, how young. If, if, if somebody were in their 20s, you know, I still think this guy Peters wrote a book called In Search of Excellence. It's about 15 years old. He updates the forward one so on. I don't think there's anything come has come close to that. And the gist of it is it's when you're starting out, it's not important what you want to do. It's not important what you do. What's important is where you do it. He talked about people in the beginning working for companies like Cron Zellerback, Dana Corporation, IBM, Four Seasons, those companies that spend tens of millions of dollars a year in setting up training programs so people know how to think and do. Now, I probably gravitate to that because I never worked for anybody. I never knew, uh, take a salary, put it in a budget. We used to, whatever was left, we we take out. So, I think at a very young age, when people, you know. But if you're young and you're in the field now, I think you control your own destiny. If you're a broker, you have clients. And you retain those clients. You give them every year or twice a year. I can think back of tenants that moved to other buildings. And where was I? Where was I when, um, uh, Uh, they make tile.
2: Uh,
4: USG? US. US Gypsum. US Gypsum, tenant in AT&T, great tenant, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. The chairman there, was the chairman when we made the deal with them. They moved out to another building. Shame on me. Okay. Why, why did that happen? Well, you can only do so much. But the point is, you stay with it and it comes around. And I think like Gene was talking about, it, you stay with it and it happens as a broker. In corporate real estate services, You stay with the work, you move up, you find opportunity. It's it's, it's not a brilliant scenario, but I think you just look at how other people have been successful. And, you know, the harder you work, the luckier you get.
3: That's true. The harder you work, the luckier you get. That's very, very, very true. Uh, That really does happen. You got to work hard. There's no question about it.
2: What was the question again? (laughs) For people who are out there now, maybe getting started and you know, get the benefit of your wisdom of what you've learned the hard way, what would you tell them?
3: Well, I happen to agree with what uh, everybody is saying, that you really got to get into the action. I interviewed a young man not recently, a friend of a friend who just finished law school and looking for a job, can't find a job, and I said, you're better off not being able to find a job because now you're forced into doing something on your own. And he said, you know something, that's right. I could do something on my own. I said the exact same thing. Go buy something. Go to all the all the all the community banks and walk in like you have money and say, "Hey, I just my family's got a lot of money even though you don't have it and I can make a deal and I want to, I'm looking for something." You'd be surprised. You'll find things. That's the entrepreneurial spirit. Making something Uh, happen—it's not going to come to you. And I'm—I'm serious about the fact that things are tough right now, which really does create opportunities for people who are really looking for it. There's a lot of stuff out there, and uh, you know, we talk about this in our company too. Unfortunately, when you get to the size that we are, you only do big deals. You can't do small deals. You can make a lot more money in a small deal than you can in a big deal. Sometimes. You know, just a smaller deal. You know, I'm sure we all experience that. You can lose a lot less, huh? You can lose a lot less, too. Yeah, you can lose. (laughs) Yeah, it's relative. That's true. But uh, there is, there's a a lot of opportunity out there, uh, and it's based on your personality and how you want to approach it.
2: We've got about five minutes left, um, and I'd like to take a couple questions from the audience anybody, any single person, or if you want to ask all three. Anybody have a question out there? Back there? Is that Billy? I can't see that far. Okay. anybody on the radar screen that you can see as an up-and-comer or maybe it's an institution uh, that's going to be the next big thing or does it not work that way?
5: That's really the scary thing. In 1977, the Tribune, uh, December 7th, 1977, the Tribune wrote an article. It said, who is going to be the next Arthur Rubloff? And they named Neil Bloom as being one of the candidates. And they went through a number of people who today are extremely well-known and senior. Um, the problem we're facing in the development field is that because there has been a lack of capital that will allow us to develop, and there has now been a new mandate that you have to have pre-leasing in the amount of 50 to 60 percent before you can start to build a building, it has drained away a lot of very talented people who would otherwise go into the field. and So, it's very hard, I, I can only speak for myself, I can't think of anybody today who is trying to bring themselves along to be a developer. I meet a lot of young people who come to me and say, I want to be a developer. But what are the real chances that that person will have an opportunity to develop something? Uh, Back in the days when we were doing it, and it sounds like uh, 100 years ago, but just 15 years ago we could build speculative office buildings. We didn't have to have pre-leasing. So it was a very level playing field. Anybody could go in and as Gene said, you know, I've got a lot of money, and I've got great ideas, and, and let's make something happen, and the banks would jump in and do it. Today, it's the other way around. They won't. So it's a, it's a good question, and it's a very difficult question to answer.
2: Okay. Right. Who coined the phrase, pre-leasing is for sissies? Remember that? They no, called it. No, no. That was, uh, <laughs> was
5: my partner, uh, Jerry Costelny. Okay. And he says, I wish I never said it. And, uh, yeah, yeah.
2: Sure. Anyone else
3: out uh, there? Gentlemen,
5: uh,
4: do okay. you uh, see a problem in the uh, commercial real estate debt going forward? Well, if you look at the CMBS and you see trillions of dollars, you know, I, you know, we all read the, the same stuff. I have no idea how that is going to work out, except what's interesting is everybody's raising distressed asset money. You know, a lot of them say they're raising it but a lot of people have, $500 million, a $1 And you look in the journal, was it a week ago, that some of them were giving it back, giving it back to the investors because they can't find a place to put it. There's not a whole lot of stuff moving off, you know, men pretend, all that stuff. You know, as long as they don't make banks mark-to-market, uh, you know, if they did, of course, we'd have another financial collapse, in my opinion. But it'll be a slow leak, I, I really think, that it'll just be slow and more capital, but when you look at the numbers, they're staggering of what's there in debt that comes up. And uh, uh, I hope the leadership just has a foresight to try to work it through with a lot of smart people.
5: Mike, I think that um, I'm, I'm taking a contrarian view in a certain way. I believe that the underwriting for debt is going to become easier, not harder. And I think what Rich said is true. I think it's going to be a situation where the banks extend to pretend. And the federal government is fearful that we'll have a collapse if we mark things to market. So I think the CMBS market is so convoluted and stretched out that they themselves don't even know where to go to bring all the pieces back together again, even to put them into a bankruptcy if they could. It's going to be a very, very, very slow go on the CMBS side. The federal government unquestionably and the Fed will get involved with that, and they'll try to stabilize it as much as possible. But on the new debt side, I think the underwriting standards are going to drop
4: because they have to encourage new things to happen. You know, I don't think up until two years ago, I ever knew the term special servicer. What the hell is a special servicer? Oh, somebody takes over on a loan to go back. I mean, you know, like not a bad business. We think the name of the 900 developers, Herbert Greenwald, by the way. Thank you, yes, sir. Okay. Uh, yes, yeah, thank you. Really? Herb thank Greenwald. You. Right. Herb
3: Greenwald, right.
4: And Barney was Wizard Accountant. Right. And it it
2: looks like someone in the back, it's a question. Cheryl. Oh, Cheryl Stein.
0: My name's Cheryl Stein, and i just like to
5: say,
4: oh. thank you, Gene, <laughs> for all the people that you gave great opportunities to and I have just one question of the Rat Pack. Which one's Frank? Which one's Dino?
1: And which one's Peter? Yeah. <laughs> which one's the Rat Pack? Frank, Frank is sitting oh,
3: right oh, here. Oh oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, 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 yeah. Uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's not a Rat Pack, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a good pack. It you is know? a good pack. And I, and, I, and I echo something that Richie said, that the industry is a great industry. And it is not really a cutthroat industry. I think everybody really works together. I think there's a lot of morality in our industry, uh, in, throughout the entire industry. And if you think in those terms, if you think that everybody is going to do the right thing, you usually get a lot farther than thinking somebody's going to try to screw you. You know, uh,
5: I'll say one other thing, Cheryl. Thanks for for that nice compliment. There are so many people in this industry today that. Owe their beginning to our three companies. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing, but it's true. Um, and uh, as you go through the industry and you see people that started with you and then went on and improved themselves and became uh, very successful. I have a, a personal assistant who now is managing several large office buildings for your company. And uh, she started off in real estate having no experience and became my secretary. Uh, that really makes me very proud to think that we gave people an opportunity to grow and expand and, and to, to go on. And I remember,
2: well, that's all I can say. <laughs> all right, I, I, I think uh, we've just about reached our time limit. Okay, so I, I think let's hear it for the rat pack. I hope. <laughs>
1: Special thanks to uh, our table sponsors for today, and thank you all for coming. We really appreciate it. Uh, keep your eye open for the next event that's coming up. We'd love to have you back again. Thanks a lot. Have a great day.